Well, good morning. I am Pastor Brian, your Outreach and Discipleship Pastor here at Faith Church. And this morning, it's a great privilege, and I'm excited to open up God's Word uh, with you. And we are going to be looking at the passage that uh, Dan just read at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. <clears throat> and the, the title of the message this morning is The Gift of Godliness. The Gift of Godliness. And you might be thinking, that's a cute title, Brian. Christmas was yesterday, and you're talking about gifts. Um, I tell you that I'm not interested in catchy or cheesy or corny titles um, for messages. Um, in fact, if I was going to do that, I'd probably lean more towards New Year's because there's some things in here that we're going to see today that are a good uh, assessment for us of, of where we're at in our faith and maybe some, some goals that we can set for this coming year. Instead, the title, Gift of Godliness, comes from verses 3 and 4, which both start with these elements of God has given us or granted us something. Quite literally, Peter is saying that we've been gifted some things. But unlike some of the gifts that you may have been given for Christmas this year or in years past, right, these are not gifts that we uh, put on the wall or up on the mantle um, so that we can say, hey, everybody, look at this. Isn't that neat? The gifts that God gives us, the gift of godliness, is a gift that has significant and eternal impact on our lives. And Dan just read and prayed, so we're going to jump right into the text. As we do, I, I do want to inform you a little bit about the context of what we're getting into. We're not doing a, a whole series on 2 Peter, so I just want to tell you something that I think is really important about this letter that Peter's writing for us to understand what we're seeing this morning. See, Peter is writing to a church that is surrounded by, maybe even infiltrated by, false teachers. And, and, it's, and it's likely that what they're teaching is an early form of what's called Gnosticism. Um, there's a lot in, that that entails, but essentially what this church was dealing with was false teaching that said, it doesn't matter how you live. You can live however you want. And so what Peter's doing in this letter is he's urging the church to stand against that sort of teaching or thinking. That the way, saying the way you live does matter. And that context is important because I think we can relate. Right? I think we can relate to a world where people are trying to influence us or teach us to do ungodly things. I think we can relate to a world where uh, people are, are either teaching against Christ altogether or they take his, his teaching or his words and they, they twist it for their own benefit or their own pleasure. Can we relate? If you can't, you've been living in a cave for a while. And it's in this context that Peter tells the people of God that he has empowered them and equipped them to live godly and fruitful lives. And it's in that context that he's telling us the same thing, that in the midst of a world full of false teachers and false idols and all this other stuff, that those who know Christ are given everything they need to live godly and fruitful lives. Those who know Christ are given everything they need <clears throat> to live godly and fruitful lives. And we're going to see this through the lens of two main points. First, we're going to see that he gives us what we need. He gives us what we need to live a godly life. And then we're going to see that we're, we're, we're actually called to live according to that, to live according to what he's given us. So let's look first at how he gives us what we need to live for him. And the first thing here that we're going to be confronted with is his divine power. 
And I know it says that his divine power has granted us certain things, but we need to remember that his divine power is also for us. Peter's saying to the people he's writing, and he's saying, what I'm about to tell you is not based on your own abilities or your own power or your own strength. It's based on God's power and God's strength and God's glory. This should remind us of the Great Commission where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And then he sends them out to make disciples and he says what? I will be with you always. He says, my power and authority is behind you in what I'm sending you to do. He does the same thing in Acts 1.8 where he, he tells them they're going to be his witnesses in, 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 in all the world. But before that, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He says, you will have my power. He's not going to commission us to do something that he won't empower us to do. Now, could you imagine if God called us and then, and then gave us some, some commands about how he would like us to live and then just said, good luck with that. Right, that's, I, I've had something like that happen to me before. Maybe this has happened to you in your life. Maybe, maybe your boss has done this to you or uh, you know, maybe when you were a kid, your dad gave you some scissors and said, go cut the lawn. Right, or here's a toothbrush, go, go clean the bathroom. Um, and I remember one time, it's actually when I was, I was in Iraq as a platoon commander, and I remember somebody had, without telling me, had given some, some, somebody permission to go into some of our vehicles and pull some equipment out. Um, I didn't know about that, I later found out. And then shortly afterwards, I was asked, tasked, to go on a mission where I needed that equipment to accomplish the mission. And I said, I, I can't do it. And the answer I got was, figure it out. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not saying I'm not able or I don't want to. I'm saying that like, I, I don't have the resources or the power or the authority to do it. And, and the answer was, eh, go figure it out. It was a very helpless feeling. Thank God that he doesn't do that to us. Right? We, he doesn't set us up for failure. God backs up his commands and he empowers his people with his own perfect and sovereign omnipotence. And he doesn't just give us his power. He actually gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what it says right there in verse 3. All things that pertain to life and godliness. He doesn't give us some things or a few things or even most things. He gives us all things. If you're a Christian then you have everything you need for life and godliness. Now, what is life and godliness? Well, he could be talking about eternal life, right? And he has given us everything we need for eternal life in his son. You can read about that more in 1 John 5. But, but I think Peter's talking about something that pertains to this life as well. And, I, and we know this because he, he, in a moment, he's going to tell us about some qualities that we should pursue in our lives. But he also tells us here that that, that this is for uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we're going to talk about godliness more in a few moments, but suffice it to say that it, that doesn't mean that we become God. It means that, we be, that, that, that we're seeking to become people whose life reflects God's character. And so I, like most scholars and commentators that I was reading, I, I believe that you can wrap up this life and godliness in, in the term godly life, that he's given us what we need to live a godly life. So if you desire to be a godly man or a godly woman, there's nothing that you need that you don't already have. And I know it sounds great, but you're probably wondering, really? 
What are all these things then? Unfortunately, Peter doesn't actually tell us. He doesn't give us a list of what all these things are. I can tell you what some of those things aren't. Right? Here's some things that are not on the list, things you don't need to be godly. You don't need money or fame or power or sex or a bigger house or a new job or more Facebook or Instagram followers. Right? Those are not the things that you need to be godly. And I don't know exactly what Peter's thinking of when he says all things, but, but here's some possible things, right? This is, this is me brainstorming based on a scri- understanding of Scripture. Here are some things the Scripture tells us that we have been given. We've been given His power. We just talked about that. We've been given the Holy Spirit who contributes to our convictions and our spiritual gifts and the transformation of our hearts and our minds. We've been given His Word where we learn about all these things. We've been given brothers and sisters in Christ, and we've been given Christian leaders. We've been given hope, hope of eternity, of a a glorified body. in, In other words, he's given us something to look forward to. He gives us his promises, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And he gives us Jesus. He gives us Jesus as our example of what godliness even looks like, and he also gives Jesus as our Savior. And this is the most important because without knowing Jesus as Savior, you won't receive all things that Peter's talking about. It's conditional. It's conditional upon knowing God. He says that right here where he says, through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of him. All things are reserved for those who know God. Not those who go to church a lot. Not those who pray or read their Bible a lot, although those are all good things. It's not for those who tithe the most or those who behave well enough, because you're never going to be able to do those things good enough to earn your way to heaven or earn God's favor. You do those things because God has given you, given that to you, or because you have faith in Him. We'll talk about that more. But you must know God in order to receive these things. So what does it mean to know God? Well, first and most important, it means to know Christ. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Those who know and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior are those who know God, because Jesus is God. This means that you know who Jesus is, and you know what he's done, and you're convinced that it's true. It means that you know that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was sent to the earth, which we just celebrated yesterday. It means that you know that he was the perfect and eternal sacrifice for our sins. That as he died on that cross, God took all of our sins and placed that upon him so that he would suffer the punishment that we deserved for our sins, which was death. It means that you know that in that death that he suffered, that he did that for us so that instead of being separated from God forever, we would be united with him. To know Jesus is to know those things are true and to know the one who accomplished them. So I want to ask you, do you know this God? Do you know this Jesus? Because if you don't, you're not simply missing out on some good gifts that he gives his children. You're missing out on the gift of eternal life. So if you don't know him, If you don't believe in him, I'm going to challenge you to seek him out. I'm not asking you to say a prayer or stand up or raise your hand. I'm challenging you to seek him out. Open up a Bible and read about him. 
grab the person you came with or grab me or one of the other pastors or elders. Grab somebody and learn more about Jesus. And when you do that, learn about who he is and what he's done. And when you do so, place your faith and your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And for those of you that do know Christ, who do know God, there's something here for you too. Because first of all, you can get to know him better. Right? Does anybody here know God as well as you want to? Or know everything about God? Because if so, you don't really need to be here. right? And you're deceiving yourself. But that's for another sermon. And the second thing is that if you know God, it comes with a calling. It says that this is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God didn't just save you. He didn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He called you. He called you from the world and from sin and to himself. He has called you to his glory and excellence, not your own. Think about that. The things that you do in your life, if you're a Christian, they're not for your own glory or your own comfort or your own gain. They're for God's glory because he is excellent so your career your family your hobbies the the home that you live in or want to live in he god may be calling you to those things but he's not calling you there so that he can glorify you and make you look good he's calling you there so that you will glorify him make him look good and to be honest while that's pretty exciting in some ways it's also a little bit scary because it's 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 a great responsibility which is why God, in his power, gives us what we need to do that. It's also why we need to trust in his promises. And that's what Peter highlights in the very next verse. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He's given us his promises to equip us for this calling. What are the promises? Well, kind of like the all things in verse 3, Peter doesn't tell us. He doesn't list a bunch of promises. Maybe because he's talking to a church and dealing with false teachers, maybe he's thinking about the promise of perseverance, that if we withstand temptation and corruption of the world, that there's a future blessing. Or maybe he's taking a jab at the false teachers, and he's talking about uh, the the, the promise of, of judgment, of future judgment, that he will judge his enemies one day. We don't really know which promises or what promise Peter might be specifically talking about. Here's what we do know and what Peter knew, that God gives many great and precious promises to his people. Now, there are some promises he gives to those who are not his, but they're few and they're very grim. They deal with judgment and wrath and the the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. But for his people, he gives great and precious promises. He gives promises like Lamentations 3, that his love never ceases and his mercies never end and his faithfulness is great. Promises like that we see in the Psalms, that he is our rock and our refuge and our fortress. Promises like we see in Romans 8, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Promises like 2 Corinthians 1, that he is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Promises like John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. And these are just a taste, just a little taste of the promises that we find in God's word. And I'm not going to rob you of the great blessing of finding these treasures yourself in God's word. Because otherwise I'd just be up here for hours reading them all anyways. 
if you want to know his promises, you need to be in his word. And something else important to remember about God's promises is they're not all immediate. Right? This is the danger of the, the prosperity gospel, that oh, God owes you this right now or on earth. He owes you these special blessings. Now, sometimes we do experience God's blessing and promises on earth. I don't want to discount that. But we have to understand that many of his promises may not be fulfilled until eternity even or the future. It's meant to give us perspective so that as we look at God's promises, it should give us joy and confidence in what we're doing now. And these promises, they're not just for our comfort. They're not for our bumper stickers. They're not for the cute little Hobby Lobby signs that we hang up in our house. These promises are given to us in order to equip us for a purpose. Because God has given us a purpose. It says here in verse 4, He has granted us His promises so that, there's a reason, so that through them, we may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become divine ourselves. right? It says that we partake in the divine nature. The word partake here actually has to do with, the, with sharing or associating. So what we're doing is, is we're associating ourselves with or sharing in the work of Christ or the work of God and what he's doing in our lives or in the world. The way we participate in his or partake in his divine nature is that we live with him. We live for him. We live like him. We aren't just recipients of God's work. We get to be participants. We cooperate with the work he's doing in our lives. We participate in the work he's doing in the world. Let me use the uh, illustration of adoption. I know we, we tend to use this illustration pretty often. Uh, Mike and I have both adopted children. There was a lot of adoption in our church. And frankly, it's just a very vivid illustration of what God does for us as he adopts us into the family of God. So my wife and I have adopted a, a couple of, of girls. And you know what? They partake in our family just as much as anybody else. right? But could you imagine if I brought those girls into my family and I said, hey, you're going to be one of us. And, you're gonna, and I want you to represent our family well. But I'm not going to give you my name. I'm not going to give you the inheritance. And I'm not going to give you the resources that our family has. Wouldn't that be foolish? It would be ridiculous. And I would never do that. I give them everything that our family has is theirs. To partake in that. And God's a way better father than I am. Amen. My wife says that too. <laughs> and he's adopted us into his family. And gives us everything we need to be a part of that family. Right? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What a great promise. He's adopted you and given you all things for life and godliness. And so church, we need to stop pretending that we don't have what it takes or what we need to be godly men and women. The world's going to try to tell you something different, right? The world is going to say, just watch a commercial. You need this thing to be happy, or you need this thing to be a better person. And you know what? Christianity is not immune to that either, right? Christianity is guilty of this. Oh, you need to read this book, or you need to watch this video, or you need to listen to this person. You got to buy this Bible, or go on this trip, or, or you need to attend this conference. 
Now, those aren't bad things. In fact, some of those things might even be conducive to your growing in maturity and godliness, but you don't need those things to be godly. Do you understand how amazing this truth is, church? That the God of the universe gives us everything we need for life and godliness? He gives us what we need to participate in his work. And one more thing before we move on to the next section. Look at the last part of verse 4. It says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. He says having escaped. He doesn't say in order to escape, and that's an important distinction. Because the reason we participate in God's work is not so that we can be saved, it's because we are saved. That's where we need to be first. Make sure that you understand this before we move on to the next part. That those who know Christ have escaped from the world. Right? We're citizens of a heavenly realm or a heavenly kingdom. We're strangers and aliens here on earth. And this is vitally important as we move into uh, the next section, which is verses 5 through 11, where we're going to see that God's people are expected to live according to what we've been given. And we can't be expected to live that way. It's not a matter of our own effort. It's because God has given us what we need to do that. Right? This, this stuff we see in 5 and 11 about living according to what we've been given, it comes on the heels of verses 3 and 4. It starts with, for this very reason. For what reason? Because we're no longer part of the world. Because we've been called to Christ's purposes. Because we know Christ and put our faith in Him. For those reasons, we are called to make every effort, to, to make every effort and to be diligent. What we're about to see is not simply just works that we do. What we're about to see is actually a reflection of, of people we have become, of our new life in Christ. And our new lives in Christ should look different than our lives before Christ. Our lives in Christ should look different than the lives of people who don't know Christ. And Peter says that we do this, that we live this out, we live out what we've been given by supplementing our faith. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge, and self-control, and steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love. And of course, he starts with the foundation of faith. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. It's expected that they already have faith, that they believe. So we're starting with that foundation. But Peter was also, like I mentioned, he was also combating the influence of false teachers, or false Christians, who said that it doesn't matter how you live. So Peter's telling them, He's telling us, well, it does matter because true faith should lead to transformation or maturity in your lives. It often happens a lot slower than we'd like it to, but it should be happening. This is why Peter tells Christians to make every effort to add to their faith. And I don't think we should be scared of the idea of putting effort into our faith anyways. Have, you, have any of you ever experienced a healthy relationship that didn't take effort? The fact is, we're willing to put effort into all sorts of things that we care about. Our hobbies, our work, our family. So it shouldn't surprise us that Peter's saying, well, put some effort into what's the most important thing in your life. And so Peter tells them to make every effort to add to their faith. And so as we go through some of these qualities that he lists to add to, the, to, the, to faith, 
We're actually going to we'll put some of those up on the screen, and below that you'll see a question or two questions or so will pop up, just to sort of help with application of what that might look like in your life. So first he says, add to your faith virtue. Some versions say goodness. The word in the Greek actually means moral goodness or moral excellence. Basically, this means be a good person. Right? Be a person of virtue, of integrity, of kindness. Be a person that makes other people say, he's a good man, she's a good woman. Not so you can glorify yourselves, of course. We're bringing glory to God in that, but Peter, who's talking about against false teachers, in the very next chapter, 2 Peter 2, he actually talks about the false teachers this way. He says that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. That people will blaspheme God because of the way that people are living that claim to know him. This is in complete opposition to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We want to be people that glorify God because of our morality, not blaspheme him. So let me ask you a couple questions. You're probably up there already. What informs and determines your morality in the first place? What, where does your standard of morality come from? Does it come from God and God's word? Or do you get it from society and the world? And then second, do your actions and do your behaviors honor or dishonor God? And I know we might not be perfect in this, but that is what we should be striving for. So add to your faith goodness or virtue. And then add to that knowledge. He's talking here about a functional or a working knowledge. It's not simply an academic knowledge. It's knowledge that matters. Knowledge that you apply to your life as, as a Christian. It's what some people might call wisdom. This is the knowledge that Paul sought when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. We should desire to know God like that. We should seek knowledge of God that affects our hearts and our minds. We need to, to, to seek biblical knowledge and understanding so that we can identify and combat false, false teaching. And if we want that kind of knowledge, we've got to seek it. What kind of knowledge are you seeking out? Are you reading the Bible? Are you reading good biblical books? Or do you just seek all of your knowledge from social media or news outlets? And I don't care which news outlet. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, that we shouldn't gather news. I'm just saying, where do you gain your knowledge from? Do you look at those things through the lens of what the Bible says, or are you looking at the Bible through what society tells you? Or do you simply forsake the gaining of knowledge for the ease and the comfort of laziness? What knowledge are you seeking out, and why? Why are you seeking that knowledge? Are you seeking that knowledge so that you can know Christ better? Or are you doing it so that you can brag about your theological or academic prowess? We seem to see that in the church quite a bit, more often than I'd, like to, than I'd care to admit. You see, knowledge that doesn't enhance our relationship with Christ or help us toward godliness doesn't have any eternal value. So we should seek knowledge of God 
so that we can know him better and that we can love and serve him in greater ways. And then we add to our knowledge self-control. This is where our, 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 our faith and our knowledge uh, meet tangible action. Right? When we know what is morally good, when we're increasing in our knowledge of God, then we should control ourselves accordingly. In, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul actually exhorts the Thessalonians. He says, know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like those who do not know God. A sign that you know God is that you don't give yourself over to passion and lust, but that you exercise some discipline and self-control in your life. The world says, follow your heart. But your heart can be deceitful when it's being led by the flesh and not by the spirit. So we have to learn to say no. We have to learn not to indulge our desires when they're coming from the flesh rather than from God. Now, I do believe that as, as Christians and as we grow in our faith that God will actually give us desires that align with his. That's the goal. That's what we're striving for. But we need to have the self-control to say no to the things that are not of God. And we seem to be able to exercise self-control over things that are important to us, right? We will rigorously practice something that we want to be good at. We'll follow strict diets and exercise regimens so that we can look good or feel good. We'll clear our entire schedule to do something that we want to do. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So why not discipline yourself to seek God and live for him. So is it your habit to practice self-control and to be able to say no when you need to, even when it's hard, or is it your habit to just give in and follow your own uh, desires? And then to self-control, we add steadfastness or endurance. The word here actually means a patient enduring. Not a grumbling and enduring, a patient enduring. This simply indicates that we're in it for the long haul. Right? The Christian journey is a marathon, not a sprint. So are you in this for the long haul? Or are you just looking for instant blessing or to feel good about yourself? Because if you're in it for the latter, first of all, you're at the wrong church. Second of all, you're going to be severely disappointed when hardship or trials or temptations come your way. Because as Christians who know God, we need to trust that he will fulfill his promises and we live with eternity in mind and with our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's not just hard times either. It's the same thing with temptation or enticement. Right? When we are enticed by sin, when we are tempted or when we are discouraged by our circumstances, we need to trust in God's promises, like his promises of eternal blessing and glorified bodies and heavenly reward. We need to trust that it is worth it. Are you in this for the long haul? Do you trust that God will fulfill his promises even when your immediate circumstances may be indicating otherwise? And then we add to that godliness. Now this, this means, godliness means that we're, we're not seeking to be a better version of ourselves. You can try to do that, but you're selling yourself short. Right? Instead, we're seeking to be holy as he is holy, to be perfect as he is perfect. The Greek word is actually, uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but uh, Eusebia. 
And it's very similar to the word for ungodly, which is asebia. And so what Peter's doing here with this play on words is emphasizing the, the, the contrast, that there is a godly and there's ungodly. There's not really a, a middle or a neutral ground. So our aim in life is, to, is for the godly. It's to reflect God's character and God's purposes. We're not trying to become God in, in function or role, right? We're never going to be God. But we're trying to be good and accurate representatives and ambassadors for him. We want to represent him well. We aim to please God, not ourselves. So when you're making decisions in your life, are you making them based on what pleases God or just what pleases yourself? And the way you act and the way you behave, is it a reflection of God's character? And again, I, I know that we're not going to be perfect in this, but this is our aim. This is what we're striving for. And then to godliness, we also add brotherly affection. The word here is the word Philadelphia. It has deep, deep family connotation. It's the kind of affection and love that you find in a family. And I know some of you may laugh or scoff at that, like, oh, you don't know my family. Okay, but think about what a biblical family should look like. It's not always perfect, but you're in it together, right? And that's who we are as a church. We're not always perfect, but we're in it together, right? And sometimes we might disagree, we might even have arguments, but we deal with those things and we reconcile with one another and we demonstrate patience and forgiveness with each other. We are to be encouraging one another and, and, and be encouraged by each other. You guys have probably heard the term before that blood is thicker than water. It's usually used um, to talk about the, the like tight family bonds or loyalty. Well, that, that, that term takes on a whole other level of significance when it's the blood of Christ that unites us. So who are you encouraging and building up? Who are you demonstrating brotherly affection to? And who are you receiving that from? And do you love others sacrificially? Do you consider others above yourself? Let's be encouraging, church. Let's be a family. Let's demonstrate brotherly affection for one another. And then to, to brotherly affection, we add love. Now, we could do a whole sermon on love. Right? I, mean, I mean, love encapsulates the whole of who Jesus is and what he asks us to do anyways. Right, it completes this list for a reason. Right, what, it, what, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God right, with all your soul and mind and, and heart and strength. And what did he say is the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said that on those two commandments, loving God and loving others, hangs everything else. Right, that everything is summarized by loving God and loving others. And if we love God, we obey him. John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And so this loving obedience to God, it's really what Peter was getting at in his exhortations about goodness, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness. Right? Those are things that we do not to earn God's love, but because we are loved by God. And then loving our neighbors as ourselves is found in Peter's exhortation he gave us to add brotherly affection. So love truly does uh, encompass all that we've seen here. Right? God's love for us, he gives us those gifts. Our love for God, we seek to glorify him, and our love for others. But it sure sounds like a lot of effort, doesn't it? 
Right? If we've been told that God has already given us everything we need, then why are we putting an effort? Well, let me answer that question with a question. Right? Jesus did that, so I'll try it. And here's the question. Do you want to be effective and fruitful in your relationship with Christ? Do you want to be effective and fruitful in your relationship with Christ? Because supplementing your faith with those qualities is fruitful and effective. That's what Peter says in verse 8. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. First, note that P Peter isn't making a statement that possessing these qualities makes you a Christian. He's, he's simply saying that these qualities uh, prevent you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Let's illustrate by talking about fruit. What do you call an apple tree that doesn't bear any apples? Useless. It's a useless apple tree, or you question whether or not it even is an apple tree. And on one hand, you could look at this passage and say, well, I mean, just because I'm not bearing fruit, that doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It just means I'm not fruitful. Well, it could be true, but I would caution you that that is a dangerous position to be in, even unbiblical. Jesus says that we will know a tree by its fruit. John 15, 8 says, bear much fruits and, and so prove to be my disciples. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. In Matthew 7, Jesus said that, that, that a tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be thrown into the fire. If we are truly disciples of Christ, if we are really following him, then we should desire to bear fruit and be productive Christians. And those qualities that we've discussed, those are the fruit of being a disciple. And they'll continue to bear even more fruit as we do those things to glorify God. And not to mention Peter in verse 9, he offers further and really even more stark warning. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, the warning here is that if you are not seeking to add these qualities to your faith, that you're blind and forgetful. It actually says short-sighted, which means that you can, uh, you, you can only see what is right in front of you. You can't, you can't see what's out there. At best, it means that you're not trusting the, 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 the promises of God. At worst, it means that you're selfish, and you only, you're only concerned about this. And not only that, but if you lack these qualities, you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. You forgot that your former sins, your former life has been cleansed. If you aren't pursuing those qualities, it means that you're either pursuing other qualities or that you're perfectly content with who you were before Christ and you're not really interested in following him and pursuing Christ-likeness. And I know that sounds harsh. I get it. Because frankly, it is. Peter is saying that if you don't possess or pursue those qualities that you are ineffective, unfruitful, blind, and forgetful. Church, that's not, I didn't make those words up. Those are right out of the scriptures. But I don't think that the reason Peter is saying that and speaking so harshly is, is because he wants people to like doubt or question their own salvation. I don't think that's what he's getting at because Peter is actually talking in the context, again, of, of false teachers. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to help the church to discern and to identify the false teachers or false Christians from those who are truly his. 
There's an element of discernment here. And I think that it's important for us to see this. It's, in, ver, in, in fact, in verse 10, he says that supplementing our faith with these qualities confirms our calling and election. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. See, this can be a tricky verse. Because the verse does say that if we practice these qualities, we won't fall and that our calling and election will be confirmed. Let me try to work through this for a moment. First of all, let me ask, who is it that you're confirming your calling and election to? I don't think it's God. Right? God, if God has chosen you and called you and saved you, then he's not waiting nervously to see if you're going to check all the boxes so he can go, whew, thank goodness I got that one right. God already knows. He's already done the work to save you. God's sovereign work is not dependent upon our fickle character. Thank God. So the confirmation of our calling and election is as much for our own confidence and our own assurance or according to this context of identifying false teachers, maybe even for that of others, that confirming calling and election. I am not saying, church, that we are to go around judging other people's salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that I think Peter's intent here is to help the church identify and confirm who the actual Christians are, who the false teachers are or aren't. So confirmation here, more than anything, is an element of discernment. Who is actually bearing fruit? Who is actually a Christian and not? Because we want to be careful of the false teachers or people who claim to be believers but are only trying to trap us. And then second, what does it mean to even practice these, practice these qualities anyway? Does it mean you have to perfect them? Have you ever watched professional baseball and then, or even gone to a baseball game, and then uh, played catch with your kids in the backyard. A little bit different, right? Or I don't, I don't evaluate my four-year-old's ballet performance uh, against the, the proficiency of the Russian ballet. Right? That, would be, that would be silly. Where people are at in their maturity of faith will, 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 will contribute to what their practice looks like. It doesn't mean that you have to have mastered it, but that you're working on it. And besides that, the word practice here, it actually means more, something more of to manufacture or actually to construct. It's a building block. So if, if you look at the verse, again, with that in mind, he's basically saying, if you construct these qualities, if you build them into your life, then you won't fall. Again, look at the context of not falling and false teaching, right? Peter's telling Christians, Peter's telling us, that if we possess and pursue these qualities, if we build them into our life, then we won't be susceptible to falling for the nonsense that's being thrown at us from the world around us. And the way we do that is by receiving what God has given us. We receive God's, that when we know Christ, we know God, that we receive His power, receive all the things we need for life and godliness. We, we, be, we become a recipients of his promises, and then we build upon that foundation with godly character and godly lives. So the foundation comes from our knowledge and our faith in him, and then he gives us what we need to build upon that foundation. 
then we can withstand the temptations and the lies that the world throws at us. This is very similar to what we see in the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And then finally, he says in verse 11, For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus said his disciples will be known by their fruit. I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in a Christianity where I really hope that I'm saved. I don't, I'm not interested in, 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 in a Christianity where I just cross my fingers and I, I really, really hope that that sinner's prayer that I said back in 1998, I hope it was good enough. And I don't want that for you either. Church, I want us to live fruitful and effective lives where there is no doubt that we know Jesus, that we've been called to his glory and excellence. So let's be good stewards of those gifts that God has given us as believers. Let's do that by living godly lives and by living with confidence that we will be welcomed richly into God's eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great, great truth and promises of your word. Father, we thank you that you even sent your son for us that we could know him so that we could know you. God, we thank you that through our, our belief and our trust in your son as our savior, that we enter into a, a relationship with you, that we're adopted into your family and that, that you give us great gifts as a result. God, we thank you for those gifts, the gifts you've given us for us uh, to be godly, the gifts of your power and your, your promises and all the other things that we need to live for you. God, we thank you for that. And God, we pray that those things would, 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 would be who we are. Not, not, not an effort so that we're trying to earn something from you, but effort that, that, that we put into a faith that we already have, that you've given us. God, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds so that we desire to live for you. So God, help us. Help us to be godly men and women. Help us first to to just know you and to love you. And as we do that, God, help us to live out the characteristics of of a godly life. And not so people say, look at us, but so that we can tell other people, look at God and what he's done. God, help us to love you and to know you and to live for you. It's in your son's holy and precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen.